John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. <laughs> Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host over and owner of the Outlaw Nation uh, and a voiceover guy. And yes, we are on camera doing this episode, a very special episode for you all for The Cinephiles. And That's for right. So very special reason, Steve. Exactly. So so if you happen to be listening to this in our regular download audio feed, that's fantastic. You're welcome to enjoy the beautiful sounds of our voices. But if you would <laughs> rather see our beautiful faces while you listen to our beautiful voices, then you can go to our YouTube channel and you can take a look at us. And one thing you might notice if you are looking at us at the video is that we have a very special guest, which is one of my best friends in the world, animator Steve Jones. Welcome back to the Cinephiles. Hi, guys. Thank you very much for having me. Well, frankly, although I'm very sad about the reason, which is that we're honoring the great Sean Connery, I can't think of a better person to have along because I know you're a huge Sean Connery fan, and I also know you've been watching a lot of Sean Connery movies lately. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I just sang to John backstage in the green room uh, that, <laughs> that uh, about every five or six years or so, I tend to watch all the Bonds again, which I really recommend to anyone that is a cinephile. Um <laughs> Particularly because, and I think Steve, didn't you actually work on these back when you worked? I did. At, yeah, at I worked DVD? on all. The, I worked, yeah, I did the DVDs. So oh, wow. they they the they've rolled over all the special features from the DVDs and put them into if you watch them digitally. And uh, you know the 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 James Bond fan club or whatever, they just did a tremendous job. There's commentaries on every one. Roger Moore actually did commentaries on all of his, which is a real kick to hear. <laughs> Uh, they talk to all the directors, all the production people, and you really see, for one thing, just what a family business uh, the Bond films have been. It's a pretty rare situation where it's just been in the Broccoli family from since 1961 with Dr. No, when they started making it in 1961, it came out in 1962. But um, yeah, so I'm, 
I mean, I guess I, I think it's probably fair to say I'm a pretty big Sean Connery fan. Yeah. And, and, and here's the other thing that's going to be different. As those of you who are fans of the show know, what we normally do is pick a movie and go beat by beat, moment by moment through the entire film, editing in clips and really doing a deep dive. And when Mr. When Sir Sean Connery passed away, we went, oh, well, we've already recorded an episode of a Sean Connery film. Way back in June, we recorded an episode on Highlander. And then a whole bunch of complicated things happened, including <laughs> other deaths happened. And then this, we did our big Black Panther thing. We did our partnership with Warner Brothers with Million Dollar Baby. I decided to do this ridiculously complicated documentary on the cinephiles, which I'm continuing to work on. And so it just kind of got put aside. And so I went after uh, we heard that he had passed away. I went into my files on my computer, into the folder where it said Highlander, and the files weren't there. And I went onto my backups and my Dropbox and my iCloud and every single place I could think of. And I, 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 it must be me that messed up somehow, but the Highlander episode was lost. Mm. It's never happened before on the Cinephiles. I felt absolutely horrible about it, but that is the state of it. And frankly, John and I couldn't see just redoing the whole thing. So this is what we're going to do today instead. First of all, we're going to talk on camera about Sean Connery's life. We're going to talk through certainly the Bond films and some of the other great films in his career. And then we're going to have what I will call a more general discussion, almost like the early days of the cinephiles. We're going to have a general discussion about Highlander, but it's not <laughs> going to be the regular cinephiles treatment. That is our plan for today. Yeah. Well, I personally couldn't be happier that this thing happened. And I... I don't think you should ask me a lot of specific questions about where I was at certain dates and certain times as it relates <laughs> to your hard drive, but I just know that I get to benefit now. I get to talk about Highlander, which I would have loved to have been a part of that discussion in June. So, Well, I'm I'm thrilled to have you for, for, for both talking about Sean Connery and talking about Highlander. And um, let's dig in. I, I, I did, you know, a little bit of research and Sir Thomas Sean Connery, I didn't know his name was Thomas was born in August of uh, 1930 in Edinburgh. His came from a working class family. Dad was a factory worker, drove a lorry. Mom was a cleaning woman. And uh, one thing that was interesting I read is that at 12 years old, he was already 6'2". Wow. He was a big dude. Wow. His first job was a, as a milkman. He joined the, the Navy, the Royal Navy, at age of 16 in 1946. Uh, discharged at 19 because of an ulcer. And then he just did all sorts of jobs. He worked as a lifeguard. He drove a taxi. He did all sorts of stuff. He had also, while I was in the army, discovered bodybuilding. And I always forget mm -hmm. that he was a serious bodybuilder. Mm -hmm. And if you look back at the pictures of him from that era, man, um, yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people remember David Prowse as well, who's the body of Darth Vader. He was also a bodybuilder as well so it's like you know at this time he's exploring kirk douglas was deep into working out as well yeah. for at lancaster so this was something that was starting to be accepted amongst uh the hollywood men at least in terms of weightlifting and you were right. seeing him just exploring it as just a man exploring bodybuilding or where that could take him so clearly he wasn't happy doing these little jobs. He wasn't taking these jobs, trying to become a manager and trying right. to own a company. He clearly was figuring out where he belonged, as most actors do, uh, until they eventually find that they do belong uh, in front of a camera. It's fascinating, too, looking at the bodybuilders of that time and looking at his physique mm. just from like a character design standpoint. Like you, you really see 
how the idea of the male physique has evolved, you know, from say the 1950s until really, I guess, Arnold popularized that V taper shape that we think of Mm. with that ridiculous level of bodybuilding. Like when you look at those pictures of Sean Connery from the late fifties, he kind of just looks like a pretty ripped, you know, Hollywood actor by today's standards. But at the time that was an unconventional look and Kirk and Burt Lancaster both had much more, kind of solid wide mm-hmm. you know bodies because just the you know I, I don't know if the word technology is the appropriate word but in terms of the understanding of what muscles to do and how to develop them had not evolved to the degree that it had once once arnold and then sly got into the picture yeah, in the right. 80s, you know um and and he says according to his bio he placed number three he's in third in the 1950 mr universe contest wow wow there's not actually evidence of this. <laughs> he, he did. We, th- th- there's like, well, maybe he was in the youth category or maybe he was in this category, but he did. We do think he, he competed in that. He also started helping out backstage at theaters and being an artist model. And here's what one of the artists who had used him as a model, this how he described him. He said he was very straight, slightly shy and too beautiful for words. A virtual Adonis. Wow. Look, this is a sexy guy. He mm-hmm. went down to London and auditioned for South Pacific and got a role in the chorus. And that is where he met Michael Caine. And they were friends for life. Wow. And by the time he became a touring company, he was now had a had a, a part with uh, real lines and he was understudying the leads. And then a few months later, he was one of the leads in South Pacific. Um, and- Sean, you're going to do this, Sean. You're going to be an actor, Sean. Uh. Um, did started doing a lot of uh, TV, did a lot of theater. His first film role is in 57. The, one of his big breakthroughs is Another Time, Another Place, opposite Lana Turner, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And um, and then we get to 1961 and Dr. No. And that's obviously his huge break. Apparently, um, uh, it was Dana Broccoli, Cubby Broccoli's wife, who really, really pushed for him. Hmm. Well, because he was in Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Before, oh, I skipped that oh, one. Yes, right. I'm sorry. Doctor No, right? Like, so that was sort of his introduction of, um, and and apparently, you know, like, uh, to, to having just rewatched some of that, you know, that I think Sean was the lead, was the main contender, but they weren't particularly thrilled apparently about who their options were at that point. There's there's some memo that's literally like, well, he's the be- he's the best of the bunch, you know, but. <laughs> And then, of course, it turned out that he, you know, created a a culture defining role, you know, from just being like, well, I guess he's okay. We could use this guy. You know, uh, apparently, Ian Fleming didn't like him. They didn't right. think he was right for Bond at all. Right. Well, and this is something that I think permeates throughout his career is this idea of of people not liking him or not believing in him or not whatever. Like he always seemed to carry this chip on his shoulder to prove what he could do. Yes, he was an ingenue and beautiful and Adonis, all of that, but things weren't handed to Sean. Sean had to fight for them, and plus, coming from a working-class background, you know that was really drilled into him, be having to fight to achieve a certain level. And even when he won the Oscar, you know, he said something about the haters or the people who are upset that he won because they didn't like. Like there, there is a thing here. So right. with Sean, this, this becomes a, a, a you know he becomes a hard edged guy, uh, which is ironic because Bond is that. And so for Ian Fleming not yeah. to like him, you know, and also look about this. This this is not the Bond we know now, right? There, this is the first movie 
you're trying to find this right actor to start your franchise. This is, these are legendary books at the time or well-loved bo- beloved books at the time. Right. And is this going to be the guy? So it's a lot to put on the shoulders of a, of a young actor. Just yeah. an interesting thing that happened around that time that kind of gave those books that boost is that uh, I think in 1960 or 61, John F. Kennedy was asked, like, what are the 10 books that you're reading right now? Mm. And mm. and uh, From Russia With Love was one of them. And it, there was a big boost in Ian Fleming book sales because, you know, the president was reading a, a, a spy novel. That's wow. so interesting. You know, and, and Steve, I want to kind of just briefly go through the Bond films and I will totally defer to you because yeah. <laughs> I can't remember. It's been 10 or 15 years since I've watched most of these early what, ones. I think, I mean, something that John said, I think is really important and is a, a, a giant part of Connery's appeal is this sort of, and it's a good, it's, it's an important thing in, in all aspects of art, right? Like in design in in film is like, it's contrast mm-hmm. and, and conflict and tension and like, Connery is a working class Scottish kid, yeah. right? And I'm sure Ian Fleming is a British guy born of a certain, you know, level of social class and wealth. And apparently Terrence Young, the guy who directed Dr. No, the first one, and From Russia Would Love, the second one, and then came back for Thunderball, the fourth one. He, everyone said that Terrence Young was Bond, that he was this very high class, he knew all the right foods, he knew all the right, you know, like restaurants, all the right clothes to wear. And that apparently that he took Connery to his tailor, you know, he took him to a Savile Row tailor. Like he, he basically, he sort of taught Sean how to convincingly appear to be upper class, you know? And he basically said, look, I'll take care of you, you know? And there's great, I mean, you know, Terrence is one of these guys where it's like, you know, like a David Niven style kind of like you know, <laughs> cigarette holder. He just looks like he looks so posh, you know. Um, but I think I think that's why it works so well, because Sean completely pulls that off. But that like bristling underbelly, like I will pop you if yeah. you step out of line is always there underneath the service. And so when he's when he's talking about, you know, like uh you know, what kind of champagne is the right thing to get. But the fact that that's always kind of seething underneath, I think, because, you know, I adore Roger rewatching all the Bond films again. I discovered how much I really do love Roger Moore, but, mm. but Roger is just a proper British gentleman. You know, like he, he, he doesn't, he looks like tennis might put him out, let alone getting into a bar fight with someone. You know what I mean? Like he just, is not very credible in the physical aspect of the role. And I think, um, I think, right, Sean Connery just sort of seethes that level of, like, masculinity and danger, Mm -hmm. even when he's just sitting there. I mean, just in Dr. No, and I guess it was very, it was very, uh, what's the word, Uh, controversial at the time. You know, he kills a guy in cold blood, Mm -hmm. you know, that, and in 1962, your movie heroes didn't generally tend to do that. And just, you know, the, just the fucking stone cold gangster kind of, like, you know, you've had your shit, you know, and then just so apologies for the terrible impression. And then just, you know, <laughs> ki- but just kills the guy in cold blood. You know, it's like, hey, he, the guy tried to kill him. Didn't work out. He got him for information. And then he just murders him. And he and he just does it with, without even raising the characteristic Connery eyebrow, I think, is is a part of that appeal, you know. Well, and I, I really think that in the in the journey to the modern day action adventure film, Dr. No is like a key a uh, stepping off point it's a key because it's it, it 
it feels as if this is going to be a kids movie and then it has this huge broad appeal mm-hmm. and, and it's like oh we can do more and you know the the the, everything we know about Bond films, car chases, action sequences, beautiful women, like all of that stuff gets introduced at Dr. No. It's it's the wellspring from which all action films that we now watch come from. Even like you could draw a direct line between Michael Bay and Dr. No in mm. terms of like, and Steve, you would appreciate like the editor of Dr. No is this guy, Peter Hunt, who direct, he edited all of the first five Bond films and then they let him direct Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which a lot of people think is one of the best Bond films ever. It just I love doesn't that. Have, it's so well directed. It's I mean, it's fantastic. Yep. It's a masterpiece. Like I, that last be a whole other discussion. God love yeah. him. But, but, um, but so at the time there's all these cuts that were considered very jump cutty. Now, Dr. No, if you watch it now, it seems very slow paced in comparison to like, say, you know, six underground on, you know, Michael Bay now on Netflix. But, um, but I think at the time they were making cuts that were very controversial in terms of editing and they really pushed the envelope on that throughout. And so, you know, certainly like a certain structure of film that we have, the style of editing and certainly uh, it kind of feels to me the most like Arnold really hardcore brought that back. The first time I can think of it is Commando where someone else tried to copy the formula of having the quips you know, like after they sure. beat somebody up, like I maybe Clint Eastwood might have done it here or there in the seventies or something like that. But I feel like Commando's the first time where it's like I let him go. You know, that was the beginning of someone else trying to copy that aspect of the Bond films. Well, I think the difference with the Clint ones is the Clint is in character in the movie when he says, you know, go ahead and make my day or whatever. But right. but with Arnold and Commando, and to a good degree in James Bond, there's a certain, and particularly when you get to Roger Moore, but there's a certain amount of, isn't it fun that we're watching a Bond movie and, oh, here's going to come the one-liner, right, you know? Right. Um, the other thing that, of course, Dr. No introduces in a way I don't think we had seen in film before, which, of course, I am certain all three of us as young men really liked, and maybe there's something problematic we can see about it today, but the the melding of sex and violence and mm. the and the the bond girls as they have been called, you know, Ur- Ursulander's coming out of that water in that bikini man. That had that was a powerful thing for me as a young man. Yeah. It's it's yeah, it's still something we're thinking about and and talking about and it's definitely shaped again, it's we're for good or ill, it's shaped the culture, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, from Russia with love. I mean, some people like from Russia with love even more. Like, I think it is a terrific film. It's got a great, I mean, it, it's got Robert Shaw. It has yeah, a Robert terrific Shaw. villain with Robert Shaw. So you just can't beat that. And that fight scene. And again, I think Terrence Young, you know, all these guys served in, they all fought in world war two, you know, the direct. So all these guys had been around the block to some degree. And so I think, that's why that fight scene in that train is so spectacular, you know, mm-hmm. because it's two guys that actually know how to fight that have been in a bunch of fights, just beating the hell out of each other yeah. in a small train compartment being directed by a guy that had fought in a war and had been in fights, you know? So um, the Italian actress, what's her name? I forget now, but she's, you know, gorgeous, gorgeous Bond girl in that film. She and Connery have a lot of um, chemistry and there's, I mean, there, you know, Spectre gets introduced in, in From Russia With Love. You've got uh, the lady with the spikes on her shoes, you know, and it's the first time we see the mysterious uh, cat being 
stroked isn't from Russia with love. Yeah, my no, memory, was. my memory from the last time I watched them was that From Russia with Love was my favorite of those early mm. ones. It's great. I mean, the one thing From Russia with Love doesn't have is it doesn't have the Ken Adam production design that Doctor No has. Mm. I mean, and Doctor No costs less than a million dollars, and there's that, and Ken Adam's sets are so iconic that that um, um, Doctor Strangelove um, help me, my name. Who directed uh, Doctor Strange? Thank you. Stanley Kubrick stole him to go work on Doctor Strange Love, and that's wow. why Ken Adam didn't work on From Russia with Love. But if you think there's like in Doctor No, there's that one scene where there's just the whole set is just there's just a circle in the top of mm -hmm. the set with like, and then there and the and then there's like a you know uh, overlay of like a like a fence or something, and then the lights projected down so it looks like he's trapped. And this the set probably costs like a thousand bucks or something, but it it's so artsy. And then those same so many of those same motifs are used in Doctor Strangelove. Like when you think about the war room, it's that that giant circular light yeah. you know thing above it too. But so I think for Mushroom would love it. That's the one thing it doesn't have going for it. It doesn't have the Ken Adam thing, but everything else about it is pretty spectacular. It's the first time we see Q. Hmm. Um, um, and that of course is another thing because it's so it's so interesting when we see things that are cliches and then you see where they're introduced, you know, and Q is a cliche in tons of different movies. You know, it's like, now you're going to go to the lab and the gadget guy. Mm -hmm. um, Goldfinger is many people believe is the most successful in the, and the, and the best of that group of films wasn't mm -hmm. actually my favorite. Um, uh, and you have the, it's so interesting. Again, thinking about this with modern eyes is you have one of the, first great henchman and mm, then you have job. this odd job and mm, then yeah. who is really a problematic character in terms of the stereotype that he exists within you know? right well and pussy galore is problematic now in terms of you, you know, think he, he's the yeah, <laughs> yeah like this i mean yes very very i, I think i think gold if there's a progression the bond formula is completely become set by goldfinger it evolves between dr no for much with love and goldfinger and then from the moment they've made goldfinger all the films kind of follow a, a formula that's sort of set by goldfinger but connery looks spectacular in goldfinger like he's probably at his peak like they've got him in some incredible suits the aston martin i think gets introduced in goldfinger yeah. um but uh but he is a little passive in it. Like there's a lot of him being captured and sitting about in Goldfinger. Yeah, that, that's the first Bond film I ever saw, and it was oh, on. Okay. T, it was it was on TCM. I mean, I don't count View to a Kill. Really, I don't even consider that a Bond in my mind. But like Goldfinger was the one that I really understood why people like this franchise or why people are obsessed uh, with this franchise because he was so cool. But you're right, Goldfinger pretty much captures him the whole time, and he's you know kind of put to the test and doing what he needs to do and he does kind of seduce people whatever and all of that but like most of the time you're right steve he's passive uh he's passive throughout this whole thing but i like it because it allows it it, it i don't it's you can almost make this as the formula for what you see later in the superhero films like batman where batman is not the star of his own movie it's the villains mm. right it's called goldfinger so it's the first you know like you've got dr no you've got goldfinger so it's like this idea that james bond is not necessarily the lead of the of some of these films it's the villains that come in and you talk about odd job as well i like it i think it's fantastic to see that because by this point people know who he is so he can sit back a little bit he doesn't have to be the most active person in his own movie by the time the third one rolls around like this one does um 
But I do want to push back on something. I, I, I think these films are, you know, we can say problematic if you want, but I also think these are films of a time. Yeah, and they I were agree. at that time. You know what I'm saying? And, and I don't want to push back on anybody who's got an opinion about it being problematic, but these were films of the time. This is post the Cold War, or actually we're knee-deep in the Cold War, but post-World War II, we're at this, this idea of, the, you know, money's rolling in, the financial stuff. is So this idea of feeling cool, feeling awesome, you know, wanting to get the girl, all of that is now bleeding into the culture and society on both sides of the pond. So why wouldn't they gravitate to a hero who is getting the woman who's this good-looking Sean Connery? That's what you want to aspire to and have the coolness that he has. So they reflect that in the movies, uh, overall, but yes, of course, it's it's problematic with how some of the female characters uh, are treated in all of these movies up until recently. So yeah, well, and I, and I th- right, and Cubby brought. I mean, I think the, they guys they figured it out pretty quickly. And look, there's right. been an appetite. You know, there's been an appetite for Bond film for almost sixty years now, and yeah. I think they had figured out a. Ra- I think one of the quotes around Goldfinger or From Russia with Love was like, "Look, you know, women want." To, right. You know, w- women want James Bond and men want to be James Bond, yeah, yeah, you know, right. and, and they're basically their attitude is like, you know, a man and his lady go to see a James Bond film that that night. And then they both they both come out happy and satisfied for different <laughs> reasons and have a good rest of their evening for different reasons. You know, it's baby boomer was, time. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, <laughs> it's also it's also around this time that Sean Connery started to hate James Bond. Mm-hmm. You know, because people would call out, hey, James Bond on the street. And that's and he's like and he didn't want to be trapped in this role. He does. I'm going to move a little bit faster. Yeah, uh, yeah. But please, if there's something you want to jump in with and, and, and go into more detail, please do. <laughs> Thunderball is next. After that is You Only Live Twice, which I loved because I was such a Japanophile and because I love martial arts. And I didn't understand <laughs> like, that one is problematic. <laughs> really, there's some real trouble with yeah, it. I mean, that's fair. Fascinatingly, it's written the screenplay is by Roald Dahl, who you know did Charlie and the Cho- who wrote Charlie and the Chocolate wow. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Do you um, know about? Do you know what the connection is with Roald Dahl? They were both spies. They both were MI6 in World War II. Oh, wow. And they both Um, worked in the the U.S. offices together in the middle of World War II. So um, these two, you know, so the guy who wrote James Bond and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and (laughs) the guy who wrote Charlie in the Chocolate Factory and James the Giant Peach were spies together. Well, and Peter Peter Hunt worked on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, I think, also. So they... you know, speaking to what you said too, Steve, of him feeling trapped, I know that was a big thing where Connery worked really hard to parlay. He really wanted to work with Hitchcock, which makes sense because coming up in the 50s, Hitchcock was the gold standard. Right, and so when right. he was able to leverage getting into Marnie, I think the yeah. same year that he did Thunderball. Yeah, that's 64. Um, and uh, then, gold, Goldfinger is the same year as, as Marnie. Thunderball 65. Yeah. Right, right. Um, that's right, yeah. Yeah, and, and Marnie is a... A good Hitchcock. It's not. Yeah, it's I would, not, I would say one classic. of the great ones, but it's totally yeah. good. He does Sidney Sidney Lumet's The Hill in '65, which I saw a long time ago. And oh. him and he and Sidney Lumet worked together for the rest of their career. I mean, wow. he, he did the Anderson tapes with Sidney Lumet. He did it in like 1970, maybe or something. Mm-hmm. And then what's that movie with Dustin Hoffman and Matthew Broderick? Family Business. Family, family business. business. That's yeah. a Lumet. You know, like Lumet definitely liked. You know, just like. Sydney, you know, I think uh, Sydney Pollock worked on that Sydney Lumet yeah. film that we talked about. He um, liked working with the same people. And he 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 leaves Bond. He's done, and we get George Lazenby, and then he comes back for Diamonds Are Forever. Maybe that's a mistake. 
<laughs> but um, he gets paid more than any other actor had ever been at, oh, up really? until that point. And then he donated his giant, I think it was a million dollars, which no actor had ever Woo! been paid up until that point. And he donated it all to a, a, a charity for uh, Scottish, the the building up of like the Scottish mm. arts. Wow. So it's, 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 uh, which I think, I mean, it's fascinating that you would hold out to get the most money ever. And then, then he gave it away. That's cool. You know? That's cool. I never knew that. And, and of course he comes back to bond in 83 for never say never again, which I haven't seen in 30 years. <laughs> I, just, I, I did just rewatch that. This time. <laughs> and here's something I didn't know. Did you know who the fight choreographer for never say never again is Steven Seagal? Wow. Amazing. <laughs> and uh, there is a rumor that I, I cannot confirm that he broke Connery's wrist. Oh, Ouch. shit. Wow. I don't know if that's true. I am certain, having done Aikido, you could put a hell of a wrist. He could have really, you could really hurt a wrist. A lot wow. of so, a lot of wrist stuff in Aikido. And then remember, could, oh, go ahead. I was just, I just remember as a kid, you know, being a, a young teenager, seeing Never Say Never Again. And, you, you know, you have a totally different. And I remember just being like, oh. Why are they showing this old hairy guy, you know, walking around without a shirt so much? But then look at just watching it a few months ago, you know, Connery's 52. He's in very good shape for a 52 yeah. year old man. Like he's probably he is probably more shirtless and never say never again than in any of the Bond films that he made in his 30s for some strange right. reason almost almost maybe just to prove the point i think or something you know and isn't bassinger like his 25 years his junior in this film and bassinger well that's not gonna be yeah that's not gonna be the worst uh spring <laughs> december romance for connery well it, it is fascinating to see how those standards have changed because it's like okay roger moore is 52 in moonraker oh you know, yeah Connery is 52 in never say never again and daniel craig is 52 this year in no you know, uh, no time to die. die. Yeah. So the the dip, you know, how fifty two, the expectations and of what's possible for a guy at fifty two have radically changed in thirty or forty years. You know? And then you get a really interesting set of movies in the seventies. Man who would be king, directed by John Huston. It's great stuff. Great movie. The Wind and the Lion. Fantastic stuff from yep. John Milius. And I love, that uh, I love the Molly Maguires. Nobody talks about Molly Maguires. I've never That's, seen it. It's an almost an IRA film with him and Richard Harris. And he right. plays, he's essentially, I think he's a British spy who was planted in this, uh, to expose this Irish revolutionary uh, group of people at a mining town. And uh, you don't find out until the end. And the interaction between him and Harris, when they find out who Connery is, and then later in the prison, the final scene between them is stellar. This is a film right. that no, and it's ex excellent film, 1970 film. People need to watch this one to appreciate who he, how good he is as an actor. And, and Steve, you mentioned this with Bond. This was the thing, right? The reason he didn't want to be called Bond is because this isn't a guy that stepped off the street to become a matinee idol. This is the guy who worked his way. He was in the theater. He was learning with Michael Caine. These guys appreciated being an actor, not being a movie star. And so being called Bond on the street limits you. And he wanted to be able to do other things. Molly Maguire's is a way of breaking that stigma. These other films, Winning the Lion, all these other films in the 70s, Zardoz even, which is terrible, is his way <laughs> of breaking this uh, idea of who he is. But you can see uh, why, well. Zard, you know, Zardoz is John Borman who, who'd yep. done Deliverance and Point Blank, like some truly amazing films and who would go on to do Excalibur, which you guys did, you know, like, yeah. And so I can understand why you'd come to Zardoz. Yeah, of but course. speaking of Connery with no clothes. And then, <laughs> or any, and Connery, 
in the speaking of submies, you know, he meets and becomes starts his friendship with Michael Crichton from the Great Train mm. Robbery. Right. You know? Right. Um, um, and he does another one I love is Robin and Marion. Yes. Uh, which is such a seventies take on that story. <laughs> That's true. Um, Audrey Hepburn. Uh, Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. Uh, there's he does Time Bandits, which I haven't seen in a really long time. Oh, love it. Um, Outland, which I watched a ton at a certain point in my life. I just discovered that that's High Noon in Space. I had no idea yep. it was High Noon in Space. I just I've always watched it. Didn't even <laughs> occur to me until the other day when I was reading a blurb about it. I was like, wait a minute, what? Damn it! Yeah. <laughs> and, and now we're sort of heading into where there's this resurgence. He does he does two movies in '86. He does The Name of the Rose, which mm-hmm. I like a lot. Oh, and, it's and, Sherlock Holmes in yeah. a, as a monk, basically. Yeah. And the same year as Highlander, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. And then the next film he does. Here we are. (laughs) (laughs) The next film he does is what he wins the Oscar for, and that's The Untouchables. Yeah. Such. That movie is. Have you guys done The Untouchables? Not yet. We're kicking it around. No, I I think we should say (laughs) we're doing it for next week. Yeah, that is wow. the, our okay. plan. Well, and and Steve, if you are available, we would love you have have you on to do it. I would, of course, be. I, I just rewatching some of it today in light of this, and man, the I mean, just Mamet's screenplay alone is worth yeah. an episode of this cinephiles. Let alone, I don't know. It's definitely one of my favorite De Palmas, you mm-hmm. know. And right, you got Andy Garcia. You got so much goodness in that movie. It's really well, honestly, good. We could do a month on the Untouchables from the score to the script, to the acting, to the direction. All four could be absolutely uh, something. Arguably one of, I mean, that's certainly, that was the greatest year of Kevin Costner's life, like on his way, <laughs> on his yeah. way up to the peak. Let's say he yeah, peaked right. the dances with Wolves in 91, right? Like, because yeah. he ate a no way, excuse me, no way out and untouchables came out in the same, within just a few months of each other. Yeah. And that's just such a, like a left hook, right cross. Yeah. Well, well, save your thoughts because because you know we still have to schedule things and things yeah. are, can always be complicated. But the idea is that we're going to do Untouchable soon. What's really strange is we'd put it on the schedule three three four months ago because yeah. Tony died, yeah. and then and then it kept because this is what happens with the cinephiles. <laughs> stuff happens and then people keep dying. Yeah. yeah. Um, Last Crusade and Hunt for October eighty nine and ninety. We're re releasing our episodes on those right now. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's some other films of varying degrees of quality, like Medicine Man and Russia House, and he's in Prince of Thieves in 1996. We get The Rock. Yeah, um, Prince of Thieves, I think, is another uh, time where he may have made more money than he ever made before. I really? want to say that it was like he got a million dollars for one minute of screen time wow. or something. Wow. It was something crazy because he only comes in there for five seconds at the Going end. On the Brando route, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, speaking of the the spring December romance, Entrapment is ninety nine. Yeah, that is that is where it's like wait, so he what? was sixty eight or sixty nine. I think he The Rock 69. deserves a little. I know John loves Michael Bay. I think The Rock deserves a little bit more love. Like that's a that's actually a fantastic Sean Connery performance. It is. When, yes. When, when he's when he's got the long hair, John. What's his John? John Patrick John, Mason. John Patrick Mason. Mason. Yeah, yep. exactly. Like he. That's uh, that's definitely. I guess he's 66 when he makes that. He's just able to pull off all the physical stuff in right. there. And it's Nicolas Cage before, you know, like when he's just, when he's, it's, it's the, the, man. the we didn't, re, we didn't realize, you know, that 
that Nicolas Cage had always wanted to be an action hero. So it was him, <laughs> it was him bringing all of his great actor idiosyncrasy, yeah. you know, idiosyncrasy. I cannot talk tonight. Um, <laughs> you know, and mixing it together, like, cause he's the nerd in that right. movie. And it's, I just rewatched that movie again recently. I think when I, when you guys did Armageddon, I went on a little Michael Bay journey. <laughs> And then I was so happy to rewatch uh, The Rock. I was like, wow, this is a great Hollywood popcorn movie. I want to ask you this, Steve Jones. Uh, a lot of people, I just heard this for the first time today, I think, when I was having a discussion with another friend about this. A lot of people think that John Patrick Mason is James Bond, his James Bond in the future. And that the way he speaks, the way he handles himself, the way he talks to hmm. Nicholas Cates throughout the whole thing, that this I, is a, I'm a version of his James Bond. Yeah, I'm completely happy with that fan theory. And I and I think I definitely think they wanted to leave room for that to be the case. Yeah. yeah. You know? Like, yeah. look, yeah, Roger Moore's not really James Bond. The real James Bond <laughs> got captured in 1971. Exactly. And they just had him on ice ever since. You know? And he would say that, you know, winners go home and fuck the prom queen. He would yeah. absolutely say that. So, yeah, yeah it makes sense. Exactly. Um, there's some, you know disappointing movies through the late 90s yeah. uh finding forrester i'd say is probably one of his last great love movies. yeah love he, finding forrester yeah really good performance i didn't know that he turned down the role of gandalf mm -hmm. well that's that, that's that's why supposedly the reason why he accepted league of extraordinary gentlemen from what mm -hmm. i've read was that he was offered both Mat the matrix as yeah. morpheus yeah. and gandalf and realized and it, there's some quote where it's kind of like this made me realize like I didn't, I couldn't tell that those were going to be good. So I said, no. So then when they offered me this, I said, yes. But then when it turned out to not be good, then it's like, all right, I guess I'm just done. I guess I can't tell anymore what's good and what's not good anymore. <laughs> well, in 2006, he retired. <laughs> There's a quote, basically, he got sick of the Hollywood idiots. <laughs> um, just momentarily, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, because I, I, I don't know if you have, John, but I know Steve's read the comic. Oh, yeah, I love the comic. I yeah, own it. Yeah. It's, it's brilliant. But I mean, his casting it for that is perfect. Yeah. It is exactly right. And there's a lot of really interesting things in that film. I particular I mean, I love the technology evolved now that like the Mark Ruffalo Hulk is like perfection. But their Mr. Fi Hyde done in like a rig as opposed to CG, I thought was pretty remarkable. Yeah, um, that's uh, Thomas Fleming. I think it plays in from the Lockstock and right. Two Smoking Barrels. And that's you're right. right. There's stuff with Mina Harker there from I forget that actress's name who did La Femme Nikita on the USA. Show. Yeah, Australian I mean, like, actress. yeah, there's a lot of stuff. The The problem with the film is the Tom Sawyer edition, which is unnecessary. Right. And Stuart Townsend is sleepwalking through his role as Dorian Gray. And Richard Roxburgh isn't scaring anybody as a villain. And so no. they had the work and, and Sean Connery is delivering a damn good performance as the kind of like, you know, the older mentor to Tom Sawyer. There was stuff to play with here, but the only time you should... he was screwed over by the director and the people involved. Yeah. No, I agree. The only time you should put Tom Sawyer in your film is if you're putting in the rush song and you just want to <laughs> that song. Yes. Then, but I think it's fun, just momentarily like, when they made Penny Dreadful, I like that they realized, hey, these are all public domain characters. And they're like, well, Connery's retired. Roger's <laughs> maybe a little bit too old. Is there any other Bonds we have waiting yeah, around that we can put in this old white hunter role? Yeah, right. Let's go get and Timothy. What's he exactly. up to? <laughs> um, as I said, he won an Oscar. He won three Golden Globes. He won the Cecil B. DeMillo Award. He got a Kennedy Center honor. He was elected by People Magazine, the sexiest man alive in 1989. The sexiest man of the century in 1999 wow. voted the greatest living Scott in 2004. Wow. Those are some good honors. Um, I, do, 
and I do want to, I need to bring up the one thing that's, you know, the one negative thing is the, this man, this Barbara Walters interview where mm -hmm. they talk about what, that he says it's not the worst thing to slap a woman now and then. And she pushes on him on it. And he, and rather than backing down or say, he says, I haven't changed my opinion. And then she, he says, it's, a, you know, it's, she says, is this okay? And he says, yeah, it depends on the circumstances. And then his quote is, uh, she says, well, what, what are the circumstances? And he says, well, if you tried everything else and women are pretty good at this, that, and that they can't leave it alone, they want to have the last word and you give them the last word, but they're not happy with the last word. They want to say it again and get into a really provocative situation. Then I think it's absolutely right. And it's like, oh, Sean. Therapy can be your friend. <laughs> and, you know, and I, but like, once again, I mean, you have to I, look, I, I'm not excusing it, uh, but this is a hard scrabble guy from a, a hard scrabble upbringing in Scotland and his perception of things and who knows what his relationships were like and what he went through but yeah. it doesn't excuse him saying it right. but you can put him in context with that quote uh and understand why he said it and still not support that he said it but understand that he said it look john wade said that stuff about native americans i didn't like that he said it it's it's uncomfortable uh but you know it doesn't tarnish for me watching a john wayne movie in the same way this though it may be terrible for him to have said it doesn't tarnish uh, uh, my enjoyment of his movies or who he, what he did in his career. Well, the original quote is from the Playboy interview in the 60s. And yeah. then Barbara Walters essentially gave him a chance to walk, walk it back, back yeah. right? Yeah, and yeah. kind of go, hey, look, times have changed. Have your opinions changed as you're, you know, so she gave him a real shot to yeah, kind she of did. Absolutely. evolve there. Yeah. And, and um, I, I mean, it, it brings up the interesting thing that has become a really big thing that we're all trying to struggle with now in terms yeah. of, you know, like, uh, you know, J.K. Rowling comes to mind because I'm knowing how much, say, my daughter loves the Harry Potter books or whatever. It's like, what do you do when the creator of the stuff that you like becomes problematic for one reason or another? Do, yeah. you, th do you throw out the creator with their creations? And I, I don't have the answer to that. Right well, now. and it's it's something that's come up over and over again in the cinephiles, which is why I don't want to get into it now, because <laughs> I want to get into a little movie called Highlander. And I want to ask the question that I have always asked, which is, Steve Jones, do you know when you how you first came to Highlander? But of course I do. <laughs> I remember it. I saw it at the Festival Cinemas in Walnut Creek um, with uh, uh, Jeff Johnson. We, I think it was, came out in '86. I think 86, we saw. Yeah, yeah um, I think we saw uh, Raising Arizona there too. The '86 is a great, another just amazing year for movies and. Uh, yeah, just that, here we are, born to be kings. <laughs> it's such a great, I mean, A, I love the Flash Gordon soundtrack. Queen, they, Queen should have really done more soundtracks, in my opinion. The fact that we only really got two out of them is a tragedy. But I already was a giant fan of the Flash Gordon soundtrack, so I think the fact that they came in and did Highlander soundtrack is just a great, great way to start that movie. And that director, what is it, Russell Mulcahy? I don't know how you Russell say Russell Mulcahy, name. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, I'm pretty sure... He uh, directed the Wild Boys from Duran Duran video. He um, did a ton of music videos. He did that one. He did Betty Davis Eyes. He did Spandau Ballet, Elton John, Rolling Stones, Billy right. Joel. Lots and lots of Billy Joel. He did Boy George. Right. And of course, he did lots of Queen, which is how they ended up doing the soundtrack. But the, um, those are those were iconic videos that he did yeah, that, yeah. That, 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 were, that were really pushing the art form of music videos at that time. So I think... Yeah. 
and the love of that, 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 I mean, I think that's definitely why we get the, one of the most arty things about that movie is the transitions, you know, like, yeah. it, and I mean, they, it's such fun, the level that they go to for those transitions. I mean, I love the one down into the fish tank, you know, uh, that then comes out in the, in the lake when he's on the boat. Yeah. There's so many great, like there, I feel like Highlander has Highlander reminds me of a band of when a, when a band makes their first album and they make Mm. it like they might never make another album again. And they're just leaving it all on the dance floor and their whole life has led up to it. That's what Highlander reminds me of from like a direct, because I think it's not unlike Dr. No, right? Like Dr. No is this great, great film. It's a great character. It's a great premise. It's based off this stuff. All of these magical things kind of had to come together. Terrence Young, Ken Adam, you get a, you get a movie star. You know, it's like how the X-Men film, if you don't have Hugh Jackman in there, Doug Ray Scott's a great actor, but Hugh Jackman was a movie star that was just waiting to happen. Yeah. Right. And he got that opportunity with Wolverine and suddenly not only does his career start, but maybe arguably Marvel movies spring out of, out of that. And I think Highlander, they've made all these bad sequels from it. They made the bad TV show for, there's all this stuff from it, but there's something about that initial thing where so many great elements came together. Clancy Brown's first, you know, performance, like, mm-hmm. Um, I I want to I, I want to comment on because I think that's a great analogy. But then I also want to get to our how we first came to the film. Um, the the I the other thing I think that's great about your garage uh, your your band's first album is it also they're doing a bunch of stuff that that the that the big pro band wouldn't do. They're trying all these things. It's it, there's an aggressiveness to it. Right. Um, how I came to the film was after you and Jeff saw it. I saw it on, I think, I don't know if you were there or it was you and Jeff, but you guys said you got to see this movie and that's how I saw it. I probably um, saw it again within a yeah. few days. I can imagine doing that. Um, for sure. uh, John, I am going to ask you a question <laughs> that I already know the answer to because we already recorded this. How did yeah. you first come to Highlander? Uh, literally days before we recorded uh, the episode on it. I had never seen it in the 80s. It had just skipped by me. Uh, and for whatever reason, it had looked so cheesy to me that I was at that age where I was like, yeah, I'm good. I'm not going to watch this kind of film. And it's ironic because I was kind of moving into more quote-unquote serious fare. And so that one didn't quite grab me uh, the way that it did for other people. But I got around to it, of course, for the recording but i think it is also a dated film i think if i had seen it when i was a teenager i probably would love the hell out of it kind of like like flash gordon i didn't see that as well as a kid and it wasn't until much much later in life and i just didn't see the appeal uh, even though right. i enjoyed watching it i didn't see the appeal same thing with highlander enjoyed watching it but the acting is destructively bad from christopher lambert and uh and he's your lead but and the weird transitions and the non sequiturs that I, like all of it. Plus you've got a Scottish guy playing an Egyptian guy named Ramirez. There's just a lot of confusion overall. Yeah, the, the irony of your, of your non Highlander, you know, not playing the Highlander. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's you so know, it's weird. Kind of, John, you just, you just brought up such a great point. Uh, and it's, it's, I just, I never realized the art. You just brought up the artistic equivalent of you have, to, you had to be there. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think everybody's got a few of those, right? Where you, oh, for yeah. me, for me, it's Adventures of uh, Buckaroo Banzai in the, in the, um, I, I totally appreciate that film mm-hmm. and I want to love it more than I do. And I like it. And, it's, and I realized, fuck, if I had just seen this when I was a kid, yeah. I would have, this would have blown me away, you know, but I, because I missed it. And I remember um, 
Did you guys all see Fletch when it came yeah. out? Oh yeah, yeah. in the theater. Yeah. yeah. So I had some friends that like missed Fletch, and so they had the same thing. Once you know what's happened to Chevy Chase, and then you go like when when Fletch came out, Chevy Chase was arguably the coolest comedian that we had at that yeah. point, except maybe him and Eddie Murphy or something like that. Everything mm-hmm. he had done, he just seemed so quintessentially cool. I remember we showed Fletch to a friend, and he was just like why do people like this film? This guy's just a jerk. You know, he's an idiot. And I was like, ah, oh, well, okay. Well, I, I, think, I think the thing too is that like we were starved for certain things that we are mm. no longer starved for. I mean, I remember John in our conversation on Zorro the Gay Blade and how important that movie was. And one of the parts of the conversation was you didn't see any representations yeah. of Latinos on film at all. Mm. And so that was such a big movie for you. To see like the culting, even, even a, non-lat- a non-Latino, even being a Latino, yeah. was better than no Latino at all. Right, right, because wow. he didn't do it disrespectfully. So that's well, the, and it, the it's a good analogy because the 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 non-Scottish guy <laughs> playing the Scottish guy in this really weird thing that had all these sword fights and fantasy elements and all that stuff. Well, we were starved for that in the mid eighties. Right. That was all the stuff I was reading. Right. So well, it's, it hit so many good points. No, it's it's you can never explain it to these kids today. Um, <laughs> but right, like since you know, since nineteen, since Blade, Matrix, and the X Men, we now live in this different world in the twenty first century, and it's a world that we as kids could never imagine and thought never would happen, even right. with Star Wars and everything else. When I was reading the Avengers and X Men comic books, I never thought they'd make a. T- I never imagined. The Vision was my favorite character when I was seven years oh, old yeah. for, some, for some weird reason. And I never imagined that he would be realized on screen. Mm-hmm. So I think even though the late 70s because of Star Wars and 80s is this action and science fiction and special effects extravaganza, there's nothing really – right. In some ways, right, Highlander is both a superhero and a fantasy film. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they're actually both those films are in short supply of any in any quality in the eighties. So I think that's why we we gravitated to them in the same way that before we discovered Chinese martial arts films, we were into stuff like The Last Dragon and stuff that just kind of barely qualified. You know, yeah, great point. The the, the well, and I think the. There, there's so many, there are enough things in it that are really, really good. The Queen soundtrack being one of them that elevate, and there are moments, and I mean, those transitions that I love, you know, including there's the Mona Lisa one, which was an accident. He just saw that on the side of a building in New York and right. then went back to London and came up with an idea of turning it into one of these transitions. Mm-hmm. But like you're in the parking lot after the first big fight and the camera goes up and up through the ground and you come out into the highlands in the 1500s. You know, I mean, th- those things were all so cool to me at the time. Yeah. And and for those of you who haven't seen Highlander, I will explain basically the plot is that there are a bunch of immortals who can only die by having their heads cut off and <laughs> that something happens when their heads cut off. And there's going to be a thing in 1986 called The Gathering, where the last of them will come together and there can be only one and one will survive. That's the plot. And I think I think one of the things about why all the sequels and TV shows and other stuff don't work is the plot doesn't, you can't look at it closely. Yeah, <laughs> right. The more you think about it, the less sense it makes. And yeah. it's like, well, what else are you going to do? You know? Right. Right. Joe, like you, you're, you're telling of it reminds me of that great, great scene. And have you guys ever done Talladega nights? <laughs> no, no, we have not. Done Talladega. That is a, I'm sorry, but that's, is a brilliant movie, Sasha Baron Cohen. Like, but they, he and Will ne- By the way, I've never seen it. Wow. Oh man. I think it holds up. 
Like, it's brilliant. I, I saw it last year. It's fantastic. I saw it two weeks after my son was born when I'd had no sleep and I was just like so exhausted. And so I think I laughed 10 million times more than I already would have laughed. But it is so, I mean, yeah. oh, there's so many great, you know, don't you put that on me, Ricky Bobby. Don't you put that on me. There's, yeah, that's a what good was, what, I'm sorry, what was the connection? How did we get to Talladega Nights? There's a great, there's a great moment where it's Highlander is Will, is Ricky Bobby's favorite film. Yeah. <laughs> and then Sasha Baron Cohen, who plays the, uh, the French formula, oh, race car driver um you know basically it's not it is shit it's shit i can't even such words ac- accent is so good in that movie. Yeah. The, the, the the one other piece of the plot that i didn't explain that i should go into is that do, do you need to yes yes <laughs> is, that, is that there's um you know there's these people showing up with their heads cut off and the police are investigating and one of the people investigating is the uh, Roxanne Hard, beautiful yeah. forensic expert who also happens to be an expert in ancient weapons <laughs> and becomes obsessed with the samurai sword. And then she's like trying to find where the samurai sword is. And and then he sees her. It's the it, it, again, when I went, when, when John and I did it before, and I went through and really thought about like, wait, how is this relationship happening? It right. makes no sense at all. And it, and really, maybe, it really is a, it really is a music video. I guess yeah. in a lot of ways, like, but it, it, it has a very, I almost want to say operatic level of scale. Like, Great. Like, yeah. Because it, it's right. As you describe the plot, my heart hurts a little bit, <laughs> but it's, but it makes me realize in a way it's not about the plot. It's more about how every moment in that film is executed and it's right. executed very lovingly. Yeah. And when I think about just how they stage all the stuff in the Highland village and then that first battle and the reveal of the of uh, Clancy Brown and all the stuff they do in the church and just some of the angles that the, I mean, there's some the reveal of um, when the Kurgan is in like the hotel room in New York and then they mm. send him the hooker and that, you know, it's like, you know, I'm candy. <laughs> and first, we have this low, low angle shot where. It's just kind of her thighs in the foreground and the Kurgan is in the other. And then when we flip to the resort yeah. and they do the thing where where Kurgan's entire face, it's like a comic book panel because his face is in focus while she's in the background. He's just, yeah. Of, of course, course you are. That whole thing at, and the thing at the end with the uh, silver cup, um, hmm. you know, like where they they replicated that giant silver cup sign that was in New York at the time, like that just, it, you know, it's, it's almost like out of Frank Miller's daredevil comics, you know, or something like that in terms of just this big, crazy scale for a, for a battle on a rooftop scene. Well, and that, and, and that, that sequence, so they shot some of it in New York and then they have a smaller version in London that they built. Um, it, you know, a couple of interesting things about it is that, so this is the, in the final sequence where he's kidnapped the girl. Oh, and by the way, right before this is he's grabbed the girl and there is the insane car drive to New York, New York sung by Freddie Mercury where, and, 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 and I, I think I need to just take a little bit more of a moment for Clancy Brown. Mm-hmm. I think he's one of the great villains ever. I, you know, yes, the movie is cheesy. Yes. He's doing this ridiculous performance, right. but, but him driving that car or when he grabs the woman and says, mom, you know, like just the level of insanity, and she starts screaming in the when he's kidnapped her, and then he imitates her screams and out screams her screams, and it's just so. And and the scene that you mentioned, Steve, in the church, yeah, is so great. What Happy Halloween, does. yeah, right. yeah. better to burn out 
Then the fade away. <laughs> if, if someone could have gone in a time machine to him in 1985 when they're shooting that film, and if someone said, "Hey, you know, 20 years from now, your most steady work is going to be on a cartoon called SpongeBob SquarePants," <laughs> what do you think about that, Mister? Uh, uh, I mean, I'm a working actor. I'll take it. But so, I, the, the film feels like a blender. Like they took. Okay, let me uh, throw in a samurai sword. Uh, the former totally. James Bond. Let's put it in the Scottish Highlands. Let's, and, it just, and let's put it in New York. And let's put some electronic cool stuff. And then we'll get Queen to do the soundtrack. Yeah. You, know, and, you know what comes out of blenders, John? Delicious yeah. smoothies and some of the best mixed drinks. You know, margaritas. You're right. Fair point. And a great case, taste in cakes. So I'll, I'll stand corrected. <laughs> um, well, the script, the script was written by Gary Wyden. And this was his college project. And the whole thing came from him just uh, seeing... Uh, uh, like a uh, an exhibit in in the in a museum, and went, oh, I wonder if we could bring that guy to today, and that's the whole idea for the movie. By the way, mm -hmm. he also wrote uh, Backdraft. That's his other claim to fame. Oh. Gary Wyden. <laughs> um, oh, what I was saying about the the final <coughs> fight sequences. So when they did when they shot the rooftop part with the mm -hmm. big sign and all the water, they that was really the beginning of the shoot. And they weren't very good swordsmen then. They didn't really know how to do it. The scene down below in the quiet space where they fall through the roof, and for some reason, the 10,000 gallons of water do not, does not fall with them. Um, that scene was shot at the end of the film. Uh -huh. And so they were much better. But Christopher Lam Lambert had terrible vision and wasn't wearing his glasses. And so it was quite dangerous. The one other thing is there's all the cool, which I thought was the coolest thing in the world in 1986, the sparking swords mm -hmm. that when they pull their swords across each other, yeah. they're just huge yeah. sparks. Well, that's because they're hooked up to car batteries and there's a cable <laughs> going through their sleeves to attach oh the my. swords. Oh and as God. they, when they used them for like 10 or 15 minutes, the swords would get red hot because there's all this electricity going through them. That's crazy. I did, a, I did a play in college, I remember now, where we had a sword that had like a blood tube. Like, mm. There was like a blood balloon in your arm and it ran up to a core that ran up to the edge of the sword so that then when you swung it and you squeezed, then it would squirt out blood. But <laughs> not as dangerous as, a, <laughs> as an electric sparking sword. The electric sparking sword. Um, uh, this, again, the soundtrack, we have Masters of the Universe, There's No Time for Us, One Year of Love, and it's it's working with Queen and Michael Kamen. So Michael Kamen's doing the score, and it really works perfectly together. Yeah. Like, it really sounds like it, because sometimes you have a movie where you have songs, and then you have some score, and they're just totally different, and that's not yeah. what's happening here. Soundtrack's who, fantastic. Who wants to live forever? Oh, it's... Good question. It's an important question that Freddie asks us. Well, yeah. and this is, I mean, he has AIDS at this point. I mean, he's mm -hmm. a dying man when he writes Who Wants to Live Forever. So, no, you're yeah. right. I, yeah, there is definitely some, well, I mean, I think that's like Queen in a nutshell, right? Like they are operatic. They, yeah. they made rock opera, you know, um, re, you know, leading up to and starting with Bohemian Rhapsody and everything else. And I think there's a, yeah, they're, they're the perfect band for that. For, and I don't think the movie works as well if one thinks it works, <laughs> which I think Steve and I do, without that soundtrack. You know, um, what, what one of the things? Oh, yeah, what did I just watch recently where the soundtrack really had dated so so poorly? Mm. Um, it, it oh man, is it one of the? Oh, it's it was Goldeneye. Okay, Martin oh. Campbell. 
Yeah. Speaking of our All Blacks, M Martin Campbell does not get enough credit for being born a Kiwi, um, but he Goldmeyer is so good. I think it holds up so remarkably well still. And the only thing I don't like about it is that some of the music is not that great. Just the and it, like when they when when Bond is first driving on the thing, or when they first introduce Fomka Johnson, there's a few places where the music's kind of clunky, mm -hmm. and you realize sometimes that happens. Like especially when a film will maybe try to be a little bit too much of whatever's like hip and popular at, at the time. Um, but, yeah. you know, and I think if Highlander doesn't have the music that it has, it's oh. probably somewhat unwatchable. <laughs> I, but I, think so. <laughs> I mean, Sean Connery is so, he, he is so goddamn charming in Highlander at, now that he's, because it, it's interesting, you know, when Connery, as Dr. No in 31, he's 31 or 32. He is just the personification of masculinity at that point. Like he just yeah. couldn't be cooler. And then strangely enough, like when you think about how great Daniel Craig still looks now at 52, and you think about probably in the sixties between drinking, smoking, and just being out in the sun and not knowing as much about exercise and nutrition. Like when, when Connery comes back for, Diamonds are forever. He doesn't look 41. He looks 51. You know, like Roger yeah. Moore is, is three years older than Connery, but he looks significantly younger in Live and Let Die than Connery mm. did. And it, but, but then the good thing about the fact that for some reason, Sean just lost all of his hair and kind of went gray kind of early is that he transitioned right into like the mentor roles and the kind of chewier. He never, he was never like a handsome, pretty actor that tried to hold on to their looks. He, mm -hmm. once he made that transition, then he just sort of became a, and in the eighties, he mostly is just being that mentor character, right? Like he's the Obi-Wan in Untouchables. He's the Obi-Wan in Highlander. Hmm. Like all of his latter roles are kind of in that Obi-Wan role. It, it, so, so speaking of Sean Connery's hair, um, the director <laughs> really wanted him to, to just be bald because he was bald at the time and said, let's have you just be bald. You're, you're, you're a thousand years old. And Connery refused and said, no, I have to have a toupee. And this leads me to bring up something that I've heard Steve Jones discuss so many times because, because you are a visual person and I'm not, is that there are so many movies we saw where you said, and Hunt for Red October, I remember in particular, was like how important Sean Connery's hair was. Mm -hmm. Like you discussed, and in particular, <laughs> Sean Connery, it's like, what was his hair in each film? Well, I think it was real. It was, as you mentioned there, it clearly was really important to him too. I remember reading yeah. our interviews with him in the late eighties or nineties, where it, it was almost apparently, I think once he got a role, it was the first thing he thought about and he had a team and say, we all know there's different actors that have lost their hair. Like Connery had some of the best hair people probably in the business. Like I think Dr. No he even might have had a small, small hairpiece even in Dr. No. And by the time wow. you get to Goldfinger, maybe. It's, by the time you get to Goldfinger, there clearly is a piece. You know, like, and I, but I, and then I think once you get to like, once you get to You Only Live Twice, I think we're starting to get full toupee and not just like a, like a piece of hair and then say Diamonds Are Forever. Because then when he starts making other films, you see like say in, in, uh, Man Who Would Be King is like what seventy five. Like he's yeah. pretty much lost all of his hair. Yeah. But so, but the interesting thing is, it seemed to be a really important thing for him. I'm glad. I'm glad he didn't because I love his hair in Highlander. It's that big, long mane of hair with the ponytail. Like yeah. I think it makes him look like a lion in a way. Um, it's a great look. But yeah, Hunt for Red October. They gave him. 
He has this perfect military style, oh, like a uh, kind of vertical and spiky and yeah. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, uh, he's bald. He's bald in both uh, Last Crusade. He has natural hair in Last Crusade and in Untouchables. So yeah. it's it, maybe for him it has something to do. I mean, he was far more willing to go bald in films that I think he might have thought of as being more serious. But whenever yeah. he was in more genre films, he like Medicine Man, like he tended to have hair pieces on the stuff that, so maybe, I don't know. Maybe, now even, just, even finding Forrester, he has hair. Uh, right. You're right. So, yeah. Well, and this it, is, well, it, I know it seems like a silly question, but it's something I actually think is important in a way is that we talk about on the cinephiles all the time. Hmm. All these the hair and makeup are, department. It's not a silly question. Well, and it's like all these things are choices. Like yeah. it's, it's not just have nice hair. It's what hair does this character have? Right. And what does that say about him? You know, and that he's making choices about his and you get into this idea of acting is is that the American method style is internal and it works to external and the British style. And there are a lot of styles of acting. So I'm really oversimplifying is that you start with external things. And so maybe part of Connery's way of getting into character is figuring out how this person looks. You know, I was like, that's the number one thing as an actor. That's the number one thing is the is the clothes, the feel, and the look. So when you look and you're reading your part, the first thing you're doing in your mind is, what am I going to look like to play this character? Well, that's and, the first and, thing you're doing, though. But right. that's not the first thing that that uh, Robert De Niro is doing, necessarily. No, I don't know. Uh, why, yeah, well, why, why, wait, why, why would you say it's not the first thing he's because doing? Because he's a method actor. So I know, but he... First, yeah. But you, but you, that's I mean, all he's, connected, though. He, he's literally transforming his body. I mean, so well, in some true. ways, right? Like you couldn't you couldn't have a more significant hair and makeup thing than actually putting physically putting on weight. Absolutely it, you know, true. Like Wells like, was always putting on noses on his face. Yeah, but they're different. But there are different styles of acting. I mean, if you're yeah. if you're a full method guy, you're doing sense right. memory and you're thinking about your your own life and your internal feelings. You know, when but you're I looking, do, yeah, okay. I do, but I do think even uh, inside out, <laughs> I think no, you even, win. Whatever you want to say about acting, you would know. Go ahead. I, go ahead. I think oh, I, well, I'm sorry. I did. I didn't mean to offend John. I am sorry. That's me saying to you as a director. You know, like let me tell you uh, what directors do. You know, it's just like it's the thing is like I I think when you're uh, an actor's reading a piece, the first thing they're doing is thinking about how they're going to look playing the part. Like while they visualize, they start to visualize what they can do. And sometimes, and I've seen this more and I've seen this in interviews, actors talk about how they start to physically transform and maybe even play. Even Brando for his audition, remember? For Godfather, shoe polish through his hair and blah, blah, blah. These are the things. Every actor will tell you once you wear the clothes, that's that's the thing in your mind that puts you into the world of the person. And method acting is just an extension of that. But different actors do have different approaches. Of course, of course they do. But the basic approaches are all the the foundations of acting are all the same what you do from there just like the foundations of directing are all the same what you do from there is what marks your uh, uniqueness as an actor absolutely i've definitely had that that experience a few times where when i was acting in college or something like that where suddenly it's like oh here's your costume you know and say like a lot of times you might be rehearsing a play or something and in the play you know, you're backstage, you're just in a t-shirt and jeans and all this kind of stuff. And then right. suddenly as you get closer to the play, it's like, oh, here's your wig. Here's your 16th century right. makeup, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. and suddenly you're like, oh my God, this is changing the whole character. But sometimes that could be fantastic too. Sometimes yep. 
you know, kind of speaking to your point, John, of like, you might be trying to do it all internally. And then right. they give you your mustache and your funny hat and your cloak. And suddenly you're like, oh, well, now I just am the character yeah. like in a way that I was struggling to figure out what the character was before. You know? Yeah, I'm sure most makeup um, people will tell you how many how much input actors have in oh, sure. the overall look and, and sure. in the costume department, which is what frustrates a lot of costumers, is actors can be quite picky in particular about what Absolutely. they want their cost because it's an extension of the role they're creating already from the first time they read the the piece. So, yeah. Well, I've had, and I've had that too where I had, I remember I was in a film and where they all thought there wasn't going to be the right continuity between my hair in one scene and a previous scene. And so everyone's like, you got to put on a hat. You got to put on a hat. And I'm like, no, it's, you know, t- we're not in the same scene. I think it can be slightly <laughs> different. So I, I folded under the pressure and put on the hat and then I just look terrible in this hat. Like, it, it, like all of my <laughs> scenes, I'm just like, why did I lose that battle? Right. I had another friend that's an actor and they had the, they they've been rehearsing their their part the whole time with like their hair and their eyes you know yeah. and it had created this whole kind of like high kind of character or something and then the day of the makeup people and everyone pulled the hair out of their face yeah and and they shared that it like ruined their whole performance for them because they built this whole thing around right. that book you know yeah yeah um so. th- one of the interesting things is this is of course one of those movies that becomes uh, a cult film mm-hmm. you know doesn't i think it had an 18 million dollar budget it made 12 million dollars in the theater didn't wasn't well reviewed and then Ouch. people like me and steve and our friends re- started renting it over and over and over again and suddenly this movie is making a lot of money and i and i was just thinking about like what are the things that define a cult film and mm. and i, I want to go back to your great analogy from the beginning of like the the young band trying a whole bunch of stuff because mm. like the use of white of wide angle or fisheye lenses throughout this movie, mm. the way the camera moves, the transitions, the aggressiveness of the performances, some of those framing of shots like the one you talked about with Clancy Brown, you know, like I think all of those things are so they're pushing the boundaries of film in a way, you know. I, I guess that analogy maybe not to my I guess it is good because right first bands what the it's like you're you're leaving it all on the dance floor. Like it might be your only album, and you've you're taking the risks that you can only take when you have nothing to lose, right? Where you just want this thing to happen, and so it's why so often we see such amazing breakout performances sometimes from actors the first time they're out, or why mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to figure out how many cult films are first films, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, like, or yeah. or early films in someone's career because very often cult films are films that like shouldn't exist for one reason, you know, thinking of Rocky horror or something mm-hmm. like that. Where, yeah. Like, I mean, you guys should just do a whole thing on cult films. Sometimes that would probably be an interesting evening. Well, there, there, I think there are filmmakers like John Carpenter who kind of live in that space. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's just kind of who they are. But yeah, I think there are probably a lot if we went through like the cult, mm-hmm. you know, that, that are sort of first time. But yeah, yeah. I mean, Carpenter is such a great example. He's definitely worth it. Like when you think about, Halloween, it kind of created the slasher film, right? There yeah. wasn't really a films like that. And so just in and of itself, that's a it created a genre and is a kind of a cult thing. Escape from New York, I don't know what the hell kind of movie that, you know what I mean? Like that, <laughs> right, that's, right. that's such an interesting mix of seven films. Like the thing is a remake, but it feels, God, that movie it's is its own thing. so mm-hmm. damn good. Yeah, and then Big yeah. Trouble. What on how on earth does Big Trouble exist? You know, like there's no universe in which that movie should have been made. 
it's 17 different movies at once, you know, like, right. It's so it, good. It's so bizarre to me that we've done three John Carpenters because we did Halloween the thing <laughs> and Big Trouble Little China. Well, you know? and, and it's not often that one director has so many cult films, right? Yeah. No, that's I, I, the, yeah. Go yeah. Ahead, John. I would argue all of John Borman's films. From totally. point blank on, sure. right? Point That's blank right. only made three million in the box office, made for two point five. So right. you could argue these are all throughout, and of course connected to, to uh, Connor with Zardal. So yeah, Excalibur yeah. is a is yeah a, certainly a cult. Did film you ever Scott. see the Emerald Forest, John? Yep, yep. Yeah, that's a you know absolutely. So, so John, I think I will start with you. What are your final thoughts on Highlander? <laughs> yeah, you should start with me. Uh, here's my final thoughts. If you love it, more power to you. It wasn't for me, but you cannot deny the enduring nature of this film because they keep coming back to it. As Jones mentioned earlier, multiple sequels, a TV series. There's rumors about rebooting it all the time. Christopher Lambert is still walking the earth. So the possibilities are there for him to come back and play the Sean Connery role, possibly if they were ever to reboot it in some way, shape or form. Wouldn't that be an interesting twist and turn of events? But I think it's also yeah. one that uh, it's also that's a bad idea, by the way. Yeah, it <laughs> is. It is. But you, you, never should write, know. you should write the screenplay. It's writing this book right now. <laughs> I bet I'd write a better one. But this I, this thing here. <laughs> no shot. No shot. But like this thing here is still one of the reasons why Sean Connery endures for us. His ability to do so well in multiple genres and have legendary films within these multiple genres speak vo speaks volumes about how great he really was as an actor. And people don't talk enough about how actually good he was. I right. think he could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Michael Caine in anything. Imagine Sean Connery as Alfred. In another world, Sean Connery as Alfred's a Christian Bale, and it would be an even more badass trilogy with Christopher Nolan. So right. these are possibilities, especially with the new advent that he was, you know, in the, in the British SS in the past. So anyway, all this he, being said... And he could have been Alfie too. Yeah, Alfie, absolutely. To, to, could have killed as Alfie. Your point, I'd have believed him more as Alfie. Uh, right. but you, you see this, and that's the thing that's interesting about this film. And Clancy Brown is fantastic in the film. There is enough for people to love and enjoy, and I get it. Totally get it. It's not my cup of tea, but there are a lot of positive things, starting with that Queen soundtrack all the way to Sean Connery and Clancy Brown. So, yeah, those are my final thoughts on it overall. Steve, how about you? I got to just say... Uh, I have a great deal of love and respect for John Roca, but my love and respect for John Roca just increased. I didn't know oh. it could do that just because I think that was such a classy wrap up for a film that is not your cup of tea. <laughs> because I, I personally, I have a thing where, you know, I think anyone that knows me and likes me knows that I am an enthusiast. You know, I love things. I get excited about things. I'm really a fan of things. And a big pet peeve for me is I hate shitting on when someone else does, you know, like if I don't like something to me, I would never try to talk them out of mm. why they liked it. You know what I mean? Like to me, that'd be like if someone was attracted to someone and they're in love with someone and then you're, you're going to go like that person, you're in love yeah. with that person, you know, like, yeah. because there is taste, you know, there is good music, good wine, good art, good film and stuff, but there's so much of so much of life is like we is like cult cult things we, we you fall in love with something you know and and right like highlander is problematic it's maybe not like not in the ways that we're usually using that problematic it's just problematic in terms of quality or whatever but i love it i love it like a you know like 
like a like an animal you found on the street and nursed back to health, you know, like so I can't quite so I appreciate that it's not your thing, but you don't feel the need to like uh crap all over it. I think that's very classy. Um and yeah, I love the film. I put it on a little bit today in the background while I was uh, working before coming to you guys and and it reminded me of again with the music it's it's a highly highly visual film i mean most of its fun is in these transitions and and where the director is putting the camera and stuff i, I sort of love christophe lambert's ridiculous performance you know cruising for a piece of ass <laughs> this strange continental accent <laughs> um, but uh but you know like like but it it's amazing how good it, it it plays not even just listening to it, you know? So for me, it's, it's like a beloved, uh, you know, Steve, Steve Morris and I are big fans of these master and commander uh, books that were written by Patrick O'Brien. And I found, especially during this pandemic or whatever, that going back to sort of comfort food things can be very soothing when there's all this anxiety in the world. And so I've been listening to favorite books and stuff. And I find Highlander is one of those things that if I put it on in the background, it's just going to make me feel good, whether I sit down to watch it or if I'm just listening to it, you know, hearing Sean Connery talk to Christophe Lambert, trying to understand what Christophe Lambert is saying, listening to Clancy Brown's most gravelly performance of a lifetime of gravelly performances. It's a, uh, yeah, I'm yeah. thrilled that I, I'm thrilled that you guys deleted the tape from the first one. That I got <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to think of how to put this exactly in the words. I agree so much, uh, Steve, with what you said. And in particular, like, they're these things that you love, you know, like I, because I, I do think film is objective on some levels. And, and a lot of what we talk about on this show is why is this good? Why is this working? Um, but there's some things that aren't objective. And the thing that I, that it keeps coming back to me is that I'm always going to love this movie. And part of it, I can't separate it from my friendship with Steve, you know, is that this is part of our origin story. It's not just a film, but it's a film that takes me back to a very specific time and place with a very specific group of friends that I identify with the film. And so in loving my friends, I'm loving this film. You know, I can't take them that. that and this is this thing is that movies aren't just your objective experience between you and the film. Movies are also the way we relate to each other. The things that we bond on, the things we talk about, the the joy we get to share with each other. And sometimes those joys like, I mean, there's a lot of movies like you brought up Commando that we watched over and over again that are objectively <laughs> bad, you know. And yet, sorry, look, it's not a good movie. And yet we quoted it. We watched it. I'll be it. back it's next week for the episode on Commando. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, 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 and those films, those experiences are, are part of, you know, they become part of who you are. Um, so that's what we think of Highlander and Sean Connery. And we are going to hopefully continue our tribute to this great actor next week with an episode on the untouchables, assuming we can make everything work out. Um, as always, you can visit us on our Facebook page, do a search for the cinephiles. You can subscribe to the show right here on YouTube, or if you're listening, you can, you can subscribe to it on iTunes or Spotify. You can support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You could buy Highlander all will maybe put up a page for Sean Connery. You can buy all of the bond films through cinephiles.net. You can follow me on Twitter at SR Morris on Instagram at SR Morris one, you can follow the show on Cine underscore 
Files on Twitter, on the Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. John, how would they reach you? <laughs> you can always follow me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, and if uh, you want to come and follow all the stuff we're doing on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says covering uh, entertainment, film, television, sports, politics, pro wrestling, whatever. It's all there for you to come and have some fun perusing all the content that is on there on the outlaw nation. And Steve, if people wanted to follow you or maybe see some of your incredible work, how would they do that? Uh, I appreciate the incredible um, Stephen B. Jones on Instagram is where you can find me on Instagram. And I actually have a website, Stephen B. Jones, cartoonist.com, all one word. If you want to just sort of see my portfolio, I don't think you can actually interact with my website except just to look at the work. But you can talk to me on Instagram if you're into that sort of thing. There's some beautiful, I'm not taking back the incredible at all. There's some beautiful, beautiful artwork on that website. Steve, great. thank you so much. I know this was short thank notice. You, thank you, guys. It's so great having you on the show. It's a real pleasure. And like I said, now I, my, my Roka meter just went up from <laughs> Rod Tomatoes Roka score just went up from the 89 to 97. I'm very happy. Wow. That's a pretty high that's, rating. I'm honored to get that. Thank you so um, much. And I think uh, that's it for this weekend. We will see you next time with hopefully the untouchables on the Cinephiles. <laughs>